Hi everyone and welcome. My name is Lucia. And I'm Cory, and we are the hosts of Reading Materials, a bookish podcast in which we take it in turns to select a book or series of books, read it, and then discuss it on the show. So, without further ado, let's dive right in. Materials podcast episode seven, I think. I'm Cory and I'm Lucia. And I had just asked Lucia how she was, and then I interrupted her. So go. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm very good. I'm glad it's a Friday. Yeah, I live for the weekends these days. <laughs> yeah. How are you? Yeah, doing? it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, pretty much the same to be honest. I'm so glad it's Friday. I just. I did spend a lot of today sort of breaking up my day into hour-long chunks and being like, okay, you can't look at the clock for another hour because you just need to get through the day. (laughs) Anyway, it's fine. It's Friday. We're here. Yes. We don't normally record on a Friday, but we deferred it slightly just because life got in the way. Yes, it was mostly me. I I had a bit too much reading on my plate and it took me a bit longer to finish the book. So, Corey, which book did we read this episode? So we read The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri. I chose it because... Why did I choose it? I think my friend Jess, not your friend Jess, my friend Jess, <laughs> read it or she listened to it on Audible and she was going on about how great it was. So I bought it a little while ago and then when we started to do the podcast, decided to wait until we could do it together. Mm-hmm. The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Lefteri. In the midst of war, he found love. In the midst of darkness, he found courage. In the midst of tragedy, he found hope. Nuri is a beekeeper, his wife Afra, an artist. They live a simple life, rich in family and friends, in the beautiful Syrian city of Aleppo, until the unthinkable happens. When all they care for is destroyed by war, they are forced to escape. As Nuri and Afra travel through a broken world, they must confront not only the pain of their own unspeakable loss, but dangers that would overwhelm the bravest of souls. Above all, and perhaps this is the hardest thing they face, they must journey to find each other again. Moving, powerful, compassionate, and beautifully written, the Beekeeper of Aleppo is a testament to the triumph of the human spirit. Told with deceptive simplicity, it is the kind of book that reminds us of the power of storytelling. I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about the author before we got started on the book. Sure, absolutely. Yep. So it's Christy Lefteri, and it was her second book. Mm-hmm. And she is the daughter of Cypriot refugees. Mm-hmm. She was born in London and sort of grew up in London. I think she said Islington. So I listened to a podcast which is where I got the majority of the the information, which is called Mostly Books Meets... And then the title was Mostly Books Meets Christy Lefteri. And Mostly Books, I believe, is a bookshop, and they do interviews with authors to promote the author's books. So that's where I got most of the information from. And it it was obviously an interview with her, and it was really interesting just listening to her take on life, the universe, and everything. And obviously the reason that I was interested is because of the book and you sort of want to, especially with a book like this, 
figure out why they wrote it. Mm-hmm. So the story goes that she, her parents were refugees and her dad used to wake up in the middle of the night because he fought in the Cypriot War. Mm-hmm. Was it the War of Independence when, or it was a civil war? No. So basically what had happened was, and I know this and I should know this because my husband is from Cyprus, but basically in 1974, there was a coup d'etat by the nationalist Greek Cypriots and the Greek Junta, who got together to try and assassinate the president of Cyprus at the time. And because of this military move, Turkey retaliated by invading Cyprus. Uh, They used this as an excuse to invade the island, saying that they were basically coming in to protect Turkish Cypriots. And they started dropping bombs on the northern part of the island and displaced tens of thousands of Greek Cypriots from the north to the south. And then uh, then the Turkish Cypriots moved to the northern part of the island. So Cyprus is still currently divided. So from what I read about the author, her parents would have left in 1974. Mm-hmm. So they've basically fled the war, the invasion of Cyprus. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And there was something that she that she talks about in this podcast episode called where is it? Transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So her father suffered trauma as a result of the war, and then she was talking to him about this transgenerational trauma, which she wrote an article about after she published Beekeeper. And it's basically where if the parent doesn't talk about their experiences because they're trying to shield the child from the trauma, they end up traumatising the child in a different way because they are repressing the trauma. Mm. And she said that when she was talking to her father about this, he suddenly opened up about what it had been like and it was a really interesting insight into what his life was like and what being in that position was like. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting. I really do recommend listening to that episode. I haven't listened to any of their other episodes. So anyway, she was her dad moved back to Cyprus when her mother died. Oh. Okay. And she she went to Cyprus and she was sitting on the beach looking out over the sea towards Syria. Mm-hmm. And she sort of had this moment where she was thinking how terrible it was that there was this awful thing going on in Syria and she thought, "Oh, thank God I'm not there." Mm-hmm. And then sort of realized how fortunate she was to be able to think that and and it sort of made her think well, maybe the people in Syria back when there was problems here were sitting on their shores looking over and thinking, oh, thank God we're not there and the poor Cypriots. Mm-hmm. And then she, as a result of that experience, did some volunteering in Athens in the Women's Centre that features in the book Yeah, and wrote the book as a result of that. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. I, I sort of repeat again, like I don't like doing too much research before we read the book because... I'm so scared of spoilers, but in the case of a book like this, I think I might have preferred to have known this about her before I read it, mm-hmm. because it would have given the story a little bit more depth, not that it necessarily needed any more depth. <laughs> sure, yep. Is there, do you think there's anything I've missed? No, not really. Um, I also did just some a little bit of background reading, so I know pretty much everything that you've said so far. Um, the fact that she studied English and creative writing at university, and she's apparently studying to be a psychotherapist right now. And her first book that you mentioned, it's a fictionalized 
story about the invasion of Cyprus in 1974. Oh, okay. Um, it's apparently told from the point of view of three or four women from different parts of the island and different backgrounds and basically what happened to each of them during the war. Mm. And she's just published... I want to get this date right because it's happened this month. Yeah, she published Songbirds. Oh, no, it's not been published. This is confusing. Released on July 8th, 2021. Mm -hmm. And that one is again about Cyprus. And it sounds like it's about refugees who have come to Cyprus from various places. Mm -hmm. And... It sounds like that one will be really interesting as well. But these are heavy books. They're not light reads. No, not As I'm sure we will shortly discuss. <laughs> yeah. I think these books are going to be potentially some of the more pivotal sort of cultural reference books. A bit like To Kill a Mockingbird. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. they really tackle some of the stuff that you just wouldn't see if you weren't exposed to it. Yeah. So with that said... Mm-hmm. Shall we talk about the book? Let's talk about the book then. Do you want to start? Well, I finished it last night. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, suffice it to say it was devastating. Mm -hmm. But very good. I would rate it quite highly. I haven't actually, I haven't given a rating yet because based on our conversation in previous episodes, I wanted to give it a bit of time and then decide later how many stars I would give it. But... It's it's either mm -hmm. going to be four or five, I would say. I really liked the way that it was told. I liked that it had the the two parallel timelines. So one timeline is after they've already arrived in the UK and they're waiting for their... To, ha to be granted mm -hmm. asylum, basically, in the UK. Mm -hmm. And then the other timeline is remembering how they got to the UK. So I, I enjoyed that. I, I liked that it was told in that way so that as a reader you kind of you know that there's some semblance of a happy ending for them because they've made it to their final destination but obviously the way that they got there was just horrific mm. what did you think yeah the same so i will normally read a book especially a book that's short like this one in once i'll normally read it in one sitting and i just could not it was too much so I started reading it when we were driving down to Will's parents for his birthday. And I think I must have been reading for, I don't know, about half an hour maybe. Mm -hmm. And I stopped and put the book down and he was sort of like, is everything all right? And I was like, I think something's just happened to me. Because <laughs> it's so affecting. That first chapter is so devastating. And yeah. the way the first chapter ends as well, you're sort of like holy moly, I need a moment to, like, absorb what happens. And then I text you and said, oh, I'm going to make some notes. And you were like, oh, really, already? Because obviously I'd started reading it before you had. Mm -hmm. It was just, there were so many parts of it that I just, the story aside, the way that she writes is incredible. Mm. Just the language and it's always the imagery with me, isn't it? Mm. I'm obsessed by images. No, that's good. And just, she really, like, gave each individual a real voice. You really, really cared about them, despite the fact that there wasn't tons of character development mm -hmm. in terms of, it sort of just launches straight into it. You don't mm -hmm. get an introduction to them. And yeah, I was, I was blown away. It's got five stars from me. 
because I just, you know, having just said a book would have to do a lot for me to give it five stars in the last episode, I'm now just, yeah. It's opened my eyes to how ignorant I am about the plight of other people in the world. I think I've always, maybe quite naively or arrogantly, thought, well, I'm from Africa and the town that I used to live in had townships where those who were less well-off than I lived and I've been exposed to the third world and I know what it's like. And it's made me really sit down and be like, I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. I moved to England when I was 10 and I've lived a really sheltered life since then, realistically. Mm -hmm. Because I also don't listen to the news or anything. I purposefully don't because it's depressing. Mm. And that doesn't give me the excuse to not know what's going on. I see what you're saying. I think for me, nothing really that happened to them along the way came as a surprise to me because I did follow the news when, you know, the refugee crisis started and a lot of the refugees had very similar stories. So in that sense, it didn't really surprise me, but it definitely really upset me to read about Mm. it again. Mm. And I would agree that especially the first chapter, I think, was a, a real sucker punch almost, especially the last two pages of the first chapter. Mm. I also, I had to put it down and cry for a little bit and then calm down and come back to it. And But after that, I think I didn't have an issue with reading on because I think for me personally, at least that was the most upsetting part of the book. And I think maybe... Maybe it was good that it happened immediately so that as a reader, you can, you know, kind of move past it together with the characters as well. I suppose we're going to we're going to have spoilers in this. So I'm just going to come out and say it. But the main character's son is killed at the end of the first chapter. He's Mm. what six or seven years old. Yeah, except it's the way that it happens as well, because you don't even find out Mm. like he doesn't. He doesn't get killed. The I think the last sentence of the book is, of the chapter is something like a month later Sammy died or something along those lines. Mm. Yes. And it's just re- yeah. It's it's doubly upsetting because yes, the the first chapter is basically the main character Nuri, his cousin Mustafa, his son is killed. Mm. And so you have the scene where you know, they bring his body to the morgue and his father identifies him. And so the that's that's kind of the story. And then mm. it's just the last line is, and a week after this, or however mm. long it is, Sammy died. Sammy. And Sammy is, mm. is their son. Yeah. And it was, it was really graphically ir- illustrated initially. So you had, you got to know, it was Faraz and Sammy were the two boys who died. You got to know them both a little bit mm-hmm. at the beginning, so mm-hmm. you find out that Sammy's obsessed with his cousin, the female cousin, and Faraz is always looking at his mobile phone and it really annoys his father. So you start to get emotionally attached to them. And then you find out that Nuri, who's the main character, is going down to the river and seeing the bodies of 
the boys who've been killed, and then Faraz vanishes, and you at that point think it's sort of inevitable that mm. he's going to be found. And because the graphicness has already been described, but not because of not with Faraz in mind, it's then really all she has to say is that we found his body, and it your mind immediately just fills in all the blanks. And then you go through the whole bit where he's in the morgue and Mustafa is sitting over his body and grieving. And then the simplicity of the line and a week later, Sammy died. And your mind again just automatically fills in all the blanks and Mm. you go, oh my God, okay, he got taken to the river and all that, even though that's not actually what happens. But yeah, it's it, yeah. I think when I say... I didn't really follow what was going on when it was all in the news. Like I knew what was I knew what was happening. <laughs> this is going to sound really bad. It, it wasn't real people. It was just pictures on a screen, mm. sort of. Mm-hmm. Because I wouldn't let myself watch the stuff that was really upsetting, and then because I cared about these characters, I think that's where I was really like, oh my god, I'm actually not doing the right thing by not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you in the... It's quite an unusual structure because each chapter has got the two timelines in it and the first word of the second part of the timeline is the last word in the previous one's sentence, Mm -hmm. which is really clever. So I think at the beginning it's... I'm not sure it's always adjectives, but the in the first chapter somebody's looking at a at an old watch and the watch is bronze and then bronze is the colour of Aleppo or mm-hmm. something like that. And I really, really enjoyed that way of linking the two together. Me too. I was kind of confused the first time I saw it because I was reading it as an ebook. And so it always tells me, you know, how many pages into the chapter I am. And so I, I think it was like seven of 15 and suddenly, you know, half the page is blank and the, the sentence just stops. And so I got a bit confused, like, oh no, did I, is this wrong? <laughs> Am I missing Yeah, that's exactly my experience as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you turn the page and it's the word, and then the word links it to the next part. Yeah, I, I really like that as well. Yeah, it's really, I'd really never seen. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. I don't think anyone else no. has used it like that. I sort of, because I was so blown away by it, I've not really thought about how I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> so this is the real organic experience here. Um, I suppose we could take it in, you know, in chronological order. So mm. in terms of their journey, maybe. So, you know, they yeah. start out in Aleppo and we get the description of, you know, a war-torn country and city and the chaos and just the atrocities that people are doing to each other. It's just unimaginable. Like, mm. you know, Sammy, as we find out, was killed by a bomb which is which is horrible but it's it's kind of um like almost an impersonal whereas Mustafa's son was executed Mm. for no real reason like Mm. he was just 12 years old like why it's just awful were they this is again where I show my sort of ignorance. Were they just getting rid of people who couldn't fight for them? Because there's a point where they 
I really don't know. I don't think it's, it's not really, I don't think it's really explained. I think it's, we should be really clear for people who don't know is that it is fictional. It is a fictional story, but it follows the true life events. Yes. And it's just the journey of the two, of the families. Who yes. Yeah, I think it's it's fictional in the sense of there's probably no Nori and Afra as a married couple. But I would say that everything that they've experienced is Has based happened. on somebody else's experiences. Yeah. So after Sami is killed, Afra refuses to leave because I suppose she wants to stay as close to her son as she can despite the fact that he's he's passed but the situation just worsens and worsens and their lives become even more in danger by the fact that Nori refuses to join whichever faction I don't really know mm. so they escape to Turkey basically and they go to Istanbul and it but it takes it takes that event where Afra, like, I think basically Nuri thinks that she's given up, doesn't mm. he? Mm -hmm. And then he realises when that happens that she does in fact want to survive, and that's when they make the journey. Yeah. And in Istanbul, he meets Mohammed. Yes. Did you suspect anything about Mohammed? Yeah, absolutely. You did. I was completely surprised. Really? I, For me, almost from the beginning, I thought that he, that he was a figment of his imagination. Mm. And I think the scene that really cemented it in my mind was when they were still in Turkey and I think they were on the beach, they were waiting for the boat to arrive to take them to the Greek island and another woman who is in their group basically comes to Nori and she says, I know exactly how you feel. I also lost my child. And Nori is a, a bit confused because in his mind, he's holding Mohammed's hand. But mm -hmm. obviously to the woman, there is no child there and she can hear him talking to someone that isn't there. I didn't even clock that. And also the fact that Afra, his wife, never mentions Mohammed. Like, she, she never interacts with him. It's always just Nori. I don't know. I think... In some ways I was really glad that he was imaginary. Mm -hmm. Because... When he goes missing in on the Greek island... Mm -hmm. I was... And then we go to Athens and we go to the park where children are being taken into prostitution, sex trafficked, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my god, I really hope that hasn't happened to Muhammad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I had no idea, really. And I think I found, I just felt a bit of relief, which I don't know if it was necessarily the emotion that we were going for. <laughs> the one sort of crucial thing that I've just realised we've not talked about mm -hmm. is the beekeeper concept... So when I I literally bought the book Sight Unseen just on Jess's recommendation and I thought it would be something really light-hearted. I thought it would be, you know, something really pretty and it was pretty. It wasn't light-hearted. Mm -hmm. um, 
what did you think about the beekeeper thing? So so Nuri and Mustafa are two beekeepers in Aleppo and they run a business together and then the bees are killed by vandals. I found the concept very interesting. It's um, not really a profession that would ever occur to me that somebody has. <laughs> I always just imagine that people keep bees almost as a hobby. Like, for example, my grandfather has bees. He has a few hives that he maintains and, you know, he makes, they make their own honey. So I never imagined that this is something that somebody could do completely for Mm -hmm. a living. So I like the concept. I was always kind of looking for, you know, what's the metaphor there? Is there some kind of metaphor for bees? So I just found that bees apparently symbolize community, brightness and personal power. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have the saying "busy as a bee." It also shows just how gentle maybe both men are. You know, mm. we also know that uh, Mustafa is a professor at the university. Like these are not soldiers. You know, these are not. No, they're academic. Yeah, and yeah, farmers. I suppose mm. two mm-hmm. things. I think for me, bees. I have been very interested in them for a very long time. As you know, I've got a bee tattoo. Mm-hmm. And my interest in them stems from the fact that without bees, we have nothing. You know, you need them to pollinate in order for us to grow crops, for us to survive. And if you have a problem with the bees, then you've got a real problem in just general survival for humanity. And I know that because there is a problem with bees in the UK where they keep getting viruses and they're struggling so there was real conservation efforts years ago and I don't know if at the back of your edition you have the section about the beekeeping project here Mm -hmm. so correct me if I'm wrong Mustafa is based on a real person who started a project here in the UK for refugees to start beekeeping and and find a way to heal through mm-hmm. what they had been doing and essentially the reason that Nuri and Afra his wife are trying so hard to get to the UK is because this is where Mustafa and his family have come mm-hmm. and they're selling the dream of keeping the bees here and Mustafa's talking about the the black bee I think yeah. the black bumblebee or something in the story that is is what sort of keeps Nuri going mm-hmm. until right at the very end, when I suppose the trauma really gets the better of him. I did see a review on Goodreads that was by somebody who found the whole beekeeping thing really contrived, and they, re- they were getting really annoyed by how much it was referenced. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find that at all, but it was quite interesting. I always like to click on the one-star reviews and see what the people who didn't like stuff thought. And I thought it was really interesting that people didn't like the bees, given that it's in the name of the book. (laughs) I read some of the one-star reviews. I found them a little bit upsetting. I mean, everyone's obviously entitled to their opinion, and I have absolutely Mm. no problem if you didn't enjoy the book because of the style in which it was written or... Mm. Anything like that, but, you know, some of them 
started commenting on how they didn't think that it was a graphic enough portrayal of their suffering or that this is not how a mother who has lost her child should be behaving. And how the hell are you supposed to know? Yeah. Because everybody's different. Exactly. Mm. I find that to be a very callous remark. Mm. Um, Yeah. So once we've met Muhammad and we've Mm -hmm. crossed the water, which is full of a little bit of danger, and Mm. I I suppose that's where the UK population is most exposed to the plight of refugees because the most powerful images that are used here are of people on beaches who've drowned. Yeah. I didn't expect that part of the book to be over as quickly as it was. Because I think it's what is sold to us as the most perilous part of mm-hmm. the journey and the most traumatic part of the journey almost. So I was really expecting that to be a really huge portion of the book. And there's no doubt that it was traumatic because you get all of the, the boat starts to sink and all the men start jumping out and Muhammad, who actually turns out to be a little girl who falls in later after her father nearly drowns and then they get rescued and end up on this Greek island. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised in hindsight how li- little affected by that part I was. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to find it on a map, basically, to try and see. I don't remember where they started out from. Because they they were in Istanbul for a while, but then they were driven somewhere else. In fact, I'm sure that there's a map in the book itself. At least in my edition, it was at the very back. I'm sure it is on this as well. Nuri and Afra's journey. Yeah, that's weird. How do they end up... Do they go round the coast of Turkey? No, I don't think they do. I think they're driven to somewhere on the coast and then they got on get on the boat. But I'm basing this solely on the fact that Leros, the island that they go to, is so far away from Istanbul. And as you say, that that section is quite short, so I would have thought that maybe they drove down the coast to somewhere closer. Because if you were to look at the map the distance between Leros and the mainland is about, I don't know, maybe 50 kilometers at the closest point. So, you know, you have people who are crossing the whole of the Mediterranean when they're trying to get to Europe. So maybe maybe that's why it was such a, a, a brief scene, because in the grand scheme of things, it was maybe quite a short journey on the boat. Because it doesn't seem to even... It only takes a few hours, if that. Like, it's not as if they're on the boat for days or anything. Yeah. So when so in the um, podcast that I listened to, where she was sitting in Cyprus looking across to Syria, she said it was an hour away. And I mean, obviously, they don't go from Syria to Cyprus, but. Mm. I don't know, interesting. Anyway, that's one to look at later, because otherwise we're just going to sit here for the next hour trying to figure out what happened. (laughs) 
But yeah, anyway. And then they end up on the island in the refugee camp, which again, you sort of have in your mind the stereotypical media images of the camp. And now you actually are in the camp and finding out exactly what happens. And he uses Sami's passport and the delusion of Muhammad to get them special access to family facilities in Athens after they've gone from... What's the island called? Lejos. Leros. Leros. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how it's spelled, so... Yeah. And then Athens is where I was next. Like, it took me a while to get through it. Yeah, which part did you find the most upsetting? Because there were a lot of horrible things that happened in Athens. Mm. I think it was the bit where they were in the park, and we kn- we've been given snippets throughout the book so far in the flashbacks that Nuri is a murderer. Mm. And... I'd been trying to second guess while I was reading, you know, where the murder was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect it to happen there. Mm. I didn't expect it to be who it was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't expect to be glad that it had happened when it had happened. Because it was the guy who was trafficking the children. Yeah. Yeah, I also, I was surprised by that scene. I suppose in my mind I thought that you know, they had been attacked or something along the way and it was maybe self-defense or or that he had avenged, you know, Afra after what happened to her. Um, that's kind of what I imagine mm. would have happened, but... I also wondered if it might be an act of desperation where they were, like, there were only three sp- two spaces on the boat and there were three people, so he killed somebody to make sure that him and Afra could get on a boat or something. Where in the end he just kind of almost got caught up in in something that wasn't really really his fight in a way mm. he just i think he just caught up and got caught up in the chaos and what did you what was this like part of athens that you engaged most with i suppose i think to me what i found really or what i struggled with to imagine is the fact that it's it's a park that they're staying in a park in in the middle of the capital city of Greece and mm. that it's it's not a refugee camp it almost is it or the way that is described to me at least was that it's almost like the place where they put people when they don't want to deal with them anymore mm. as in they they kind of help the families so adults with children but if you don't have a child with you they just kind of dump you in this park which is Mm. overrun by criminals and drug addicts and traffickers and mentally unwell people yeah and you have NGO workers who who go and interact with the refugees but they're not really you know trying at least it didn't seem like they were trying to help them move on they're just kind of there to maintain Mm. them if that makes sense and I I just found that really weird yeah I suppose that's the overwhelming nature of what's going on because there's so many people who need help and they've got so the center that Christy Lefteri 
volunteered at was the Women and Children's Centre where they could go and have a shower and the children could go and learn, you know, go to school. Mm-hmm. And that centre is now apparently an activity centre to try... So when she volunteers there now, she teaches English. So they're trying to teach people languages so that they can become more self-sufficient and they can go off and they can get help. Mm-hmm. Because I think... I can see in terms of the reviews that you mentioned where they say, oh, this isn't the experience of a refugee, really. Nuri and Afra had money because he was quite... He had managed to preserve some money and therefore they could fly from Greece to London or wherever mm-hmm. they went. Mm-hmm. And that was... They had, to, they had to be trafficked to do it. They had to have fake passports and everything, but they could still afford to pay for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas so many people just would have nothing Mm. and I suppose that's what the NGOs are trying to do in Athens is to try help out the people who have literally nothing and if they do have something it's sort of off their own initiative for them to figure out what to do I think for me the most or one of the many most devastating things about this book was actually the character of Angeliki. Yeah. I found her really hard as well. Yeah. For different reasons to you, I suspect, but it's just you know, I don't understand why how anyone could do that to her. War is war is awful, war is, you know, there's no denying it, but she lost her child in Greece. Mm. And her child didn't die. It was taken from her. And I, mm. I just don't understand how anyone can be capable of doing something like that. Mm. I suppose that's the, maybe that's the criminality, you know, highlights the criminality and the danger of what happens when you do end up somewhere and you've got no protection at all from anything. Mm. I found her, the, so the way that she sort of copes with losing the, her child was for her mental health to become a shield, almost. And she was sort of... She used the fact that she'd gone mad, as she put it, as a coping mechanism, which, again, I can (laughs) completely empathise with, because having been in some pretty upsetting places myself without trauma like that, it can be very easy to just be like, well, this is just my coping mechanism now, is to sink into it almost, Mm. which is really scary. And I think, you know, thank God I live in the UK and have access to help. Mm. Yeah, I think out of all the characters that we meet along the way, she's the one that I wonder what what happened to her after after they left. Mm. Because yeah. I think she, she kind of clung to, to both Nuri and to Afra once she met them. Yeah. And I think she felt a bit safer with them for understandable reasons. I mean, she was completely alone. And after everything that had happened to her, you know, at least she could pitch her tent or her sleeping bag next to someone next else. To them. Yeah. So I, I really feel for and her. Then and then they I, just, yeah. I don't know whatever happened to her. Oh, God. 
So after, no, in Greece, they have some leftover money, not mm-hmm. enough. So Nuri starts moving around drugs and doing drug deliveries. And that's to pay off the remainder of the fee that his smuggler, I suppose, or trafficker, or what is he? I think smuggler. Somebody who can, yeah, human smuggler. (laughs) So he organises for them to get fake passports and plane tickets. Mm -hmm. And then he rapes Afra on the last night in Athens. Yeah. And it sort of comes in the story when the sort of present day tale where they're in England and they've been interviewed now for their asylum applications and Nuri is hallucinating that he sees Muhammad in the garden or through the laundry cupboard and he is really struggling to physically cope or just be with Afra and it almost feels like he's starting to be disgusted by her almost or I don't know if disgusted is the right word just unable to touch her because she will turn to him for comfort and he'll turn away mm-hmm. and I get the sense it's because of the guilt that he feels for not protecting her because he leaves the key to the room that she's in on the table and then the guy gets in I think they're their struggle for intimacy works on a lot of levels mm. in this book because, you know, it could be for any reason, any reason for what they've experienced. I think it would be entirely understandable that, you know, the loss of their child, the just unbelievable things that they've witnessed and experienced. I agree that there's probably a huge amount of guilt that he's feeling mm-hmm. for what happened to her. And the fact that even afterwards, you know, that he did, he took no action. He didn't do anything be- because he couldn't. Because mm. if he had, who knows how much worse their journey would have been or if it would have just ended right there in, in, in Athens. So do you think the end was uplifting? Yes, I think so. I think it it ended on a hopeful tone. Obviously, we don't know if they are granted asylum in the UK, but you can you hope that they do obviously and the meeting up with Mustafa again, I think is very nice. Mm. It's a nice way to end it because that is who they've been trying to get to this whole time. Did you find it uplifting? Yeah, I think So what happens? Nuri ends up on the beach and he gets taken to hospital because he has, he ends up in the water Mm -hmm. and he has been communicating with Mustafa the whole way through Europe and then they get to America, to England, they get to England and he doesn't message Mustafa to say that they're there for a few weeks and then when he does... He basically just says, there's something wrong with me. And he sends Mustafa the address. And one of the reviews that I saw 
again said, you know, why wouldn't he, having been in contact with Mustafa all the way through to Athens, why would he not then message him as soon as he got to England and say, we're here? And again, just thinking back to the difficulties with mental health stuff that I've had, my family and friends were always the last people to know, and it would always be when I had reached breaking point. And I think reading through it the whole way, knowing that there are NGOs and organisations where people can help and people go to Athens and volunteer or I've seen loads of people in Bristol who collect stuff and stick it in a van and drive it to the refugee camps in Calais and I've always felt that that is something I would be categorically unable to do but then I sort of found it uplifting for a completely different reason because of the beekeeping society in the UK and the mental health aspect where I'm part of the NHS and I've been really fortunate because I've been able to get the help that I've needed and there's 100% going to be a way that I can get involved mm-hmm. without doing something I don't think I would be capable of doing. God, I sound so... I've got such a white privilege shining off me right now. Um, but... I think I found it uplifting from a there is something that I can do to help, but I found the whole book so devastating that I genuinely like feel changed by it and almost unaffected by the fact that this couple have got to the UK and have been able to apply for asylum because of the thousands of other people mm-hmm. who haven't been able to do that. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's um it's also uplifting because you can see that both Nori and Afra have started to heal. Yeah, that's true. For Afra it's the fact that her sight is slowly coming back and for Nori it's just accepting that Mohammed is not real. Mohammed is a son that he has created for himself, basically, to deal with the fact that his own son is dead. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really... I thought that was really nicely written, that those scenes when he he comes to realize that everything that he has used to construct Muhammad is, is based on, obviously, his own memories of Sami. Mm-hmm. A very sad book. It is a very sad book. Um, but I'm glad that it was written and I'm I'm glad yeah. that I read it. Yeah. I don't know I if I would well. really want to read anything like this anytime soon. I know that there are no. so many books of this type, you know, because unfortunately, you know, the world is shit. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have a lot of trauma. Trauma. Yeah, I think it really um, highlights the reason we read when we had our first, I think it's in the first episode where we talk about what we read, and you said that you read fantasy because you need an escape, and I think that is true for me most of the time as well, and yes, there are, there is so much trauma, and if fantasy is a way to escape that, then 
it doesn't matter what anybody says about high fantasy or, you know, why do you read sort of Costa Coffee Club, sit on a beach, nonsense tales, or the, or the book that I was telling you about earlier where it's two retired people who've gone to Greece, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's it sort of brings home to me again the joy of books and the joy of escapism. Um, I am very glad that we've read this book and I would love to see if there is something that I can do not only to help other people but to educate myself more mm-hmm. and to not avoid the news as much as I do. I, I won't watch the news in a traditional form but I might you know, try to see if there's something that I can read that is more acceptable to me but still makes me part of the planet (laughs) (laughs) and not just in my own little world Mm. i completely know what you mean though about yeah the news is just it's just full of horrible things it's just really really depressing and sad like there's very rarely you know a happy occasion that has happened Mm. um like even like even Eurovision, which was you know such a fun evening, like the next day's headline was the fact that they were convinced that the winning act had been taking drugs, and that became the thing that we're now going to remember them by. I like, know why, I know. and we had such fun. We, so we were all texting each other in the group, like commenting on the acts, and it was fun. Yeah, I agree with you. And there are good things happening, and it's not all doom and gloom. For sure. And, yeah. So, what are we reading next to escape the world? (laughs) What are we reading next? Uh, Next time we will be discussing The Book of Lost Things. And I've picked this one. To be perfectly honest with you, I picked it so long ago, I've completely forgotten what it's about. And I haven't started (laughs) it yet, so... I've got as far as downloading it. Okay, me too. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think to follow up from this episode, what I would like mm-hmm. from our listeners is if anybody knows of any resources that are really good for keeping yourself up to date without overwhelming yourself, it would be mm. good to know what they are. Mm-hmm. And if we do get any, we'll, I don't know, publish them somewhere. I'll figure that out at some mm. point. I think bookstagrammers are are quite good at these things as well, like from the few things that I've seen on on Instagram, you know they they are getting involved and they do post things, links to yeah resources about other events that have happened since we joined Instagram. So mm. hopefully someone will let us know. But yeah, we will chat in a couple of weeks, and we will hopefully be much happier and much more uplifted. We won't do it on a Friday when we've both had a bad day at work. (laughs) It won't be about a sad book, hopefully. Sounds good. Sounds good. Good. I look forward to it. Yeah, me too. I will chat to you in a couple of weeks. I'll chat to you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can send your feedback, thoughts, questions and book recommendations to us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram as Reading Materials Pod, Twitter as Reading Matt, and Facebook as Reading Materials Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, keep reading.